so I, I will confess this is not going to be the most exciting uh, message. I think we're only going to just do it today. It should be enough to just do today. We'll see. Uh, but it's something that I think it was just necessary in the logical flow of our study. And uh, so I wanted to go through it as a kind of way of closing off our, well, it's not closing off our discussion of psychology per se, but in terms of really evaluating the different approaches, and specifically the different approaches that Christians are taking with regard to psychology and Christianity. So we will do this one today. As you can see, the next message is on mental illness. I think that one you will find incredibly interesting and insightful. Uh, looking at the category of mental illness, and then actually going through a number of categories of mental illness and diagnoses of mental illness, and demonstrating not only do they lack a concrete cause and a concrete discernible cause, but they are also, you're able to define these so-called mental illnesses from a biblical worldview, which actually is more enlightening and, and has greater explanatory power than even the common uh, medical diagnoses. So I think that will be exceedingly interesting and hopefully, I hope, hopefully this series has been opening your eyes to see the way that, especially in the realm of psychology, things are dependent upon underlying assumptions about reality. And, and that, if you get that, then I think, I've, I think I've done a lot in helping you discern these issues. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, get, we'll go through this uh, lesson for today, and I'll stop for questions and hopefully be able to answer your questions, and, and we'll move along in this study. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning. We thank you for the wonderful uh, wedding last night. We thank you for the grace that you've shown Nathan and Melissa, we just pray that you would uh, be upon their relationship, protecting them from the evil one, granting them a, a wonderful time away as they celebrate their newly married life. Lord, I pray uh, this morning that you'd give us understanding into your word and how to discern truth and error in the world today, especially truth claims that speak to the issue of our behavior and our motivations and the things of greatest importance. So we just ask for your insight and your help by the Holy Spirit. I pray for each one here that you would give them great joy in their journey, give them a passion to think rightly about you and to apply the word to every facet of their life. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so take your sheets here. What I did was I just, I'm using the book um, Five Views of Christianity and Psychology as the template to do this study today. And what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through, this is how the book is set up. This is a, a multi-view book, and I don't know if you've ever read a multi-view book, but they're actually quite helpful because what they do is, is they give you, one person writes their view, and if you, you know, you have mul multiple views in the book, so one person writes their view, and the other people respond in a shorter, much shorter essay, but they respond to their view. And in some cases, the, the original person will get a rebuttal at the end, not all the time, but at the very least, you have each person presenting their view and each other, per, other view responding to that particular view. And these are helpful because it's a condensed and convenient way of hearing people's views from their own mouths and, and to be able to interact with them from different perspectives. And so that's all. I'm just using this, that book to, as a template to walk through these levels of uh, these approaches to uh, 
psychology from a Christian perspective. These are all approaches to Christianity from a Christian perspective. The five different ways of doing it, really, I, I'm going to argue really only two different ways of doing it, uh, but we'll, I, you'll see what I mean in a moment, what I mean by that in a moment. But let's talk briefly about this so-called levels of explanation approach. This is how they would define themselves. This is, how, this is the nomenclature that they would use. They are approaching psychology, the study of psychology, assuming Christian truths, but believing that uh, scientific psycho, psycho, psychological research actually does have value for uh, the Christian enterprise, the Christian counseling enterprise. And with levels of explanation, I think you're going to find, and this is safe to say, I think you're going to find that the concern for this approach isn't so much the counseling office, not so much the counseling task. They believe that what they discover may lead into helping people counsel other individual uh, Christians. But as you work through it, as I work through it, there seems to be primarily, the, the, the primary benefit of this particular approach is apologetic. Basically, showing that the Christian faith answers big questions in life, that it answers uh, persuasively the big, Christians, uh, big questions of life. I'll show you what I mean here in a second, but this is how they approach psychology. They say, he says, quote, um, and ever, this is the... the proponent of this view. He says, quote, an ever-reforming faith will always be open to learning from both the book of God's word and the book of God's works. Now, where have we heard that kind of language before? Remember when we were talking about these various methodologies? Uh, a few, it was, a, it was a few lessons ago, we were talking about these various methodologies, basically between the biblical counseling approach and an integration of, integrationist approach. And the integration approach says that we have in God's created order, we have God's world from which we can learn many things, and we have God's word from which we can learn many things, and we are able to uh, glean truths from both of these. But what, one of the things that I showed uh, in that previous uh, study on methodology was that those who take that approach typically have a deficient view of general revelation meaning that they believe that general revelation is anything that you learn from the natural order. So you study the natural order, you learn something from it, and that is something that is of God's general revelation, and for that reason it is uh, equally authoritative as the Scripture. And so he's talking about, he's making this statement that sounds wonderful, it sounds great. We have these two books, God's Word and God's Works. God's Word and God's World, and we can learn from both of them. And you're like, well, that sounds good, and we would agree generally with that. Uh, the problem is, how do you understand general revelation, and how do you understand the place and the authority of Scripture in relation to what we learn out there in the world, or what we learn from God's creation? Does this have a place of authority? Does this have a place of higher authority or discerning authority over what you learn in God's world? Um, they also, he also argues that religious and scientific levels of explanation often complement one another. He says, 
quote, it just means, or it, this doesn't preclude conflict between the two, he says, it just means that the different types of analysis can fit coherently together. In God's world, all truth is one. And you're like, well, yeah, that, yes, truth, all truth is one, all truth is God's truth, but remember, we believe, or I, should, I, I would argue that the biblical counseling position argues, and this is where I hold, this is where I stand, that general revelation is not what we learn in scientific inquiry. It's not what we learn in history. General revelation is God revealing himself to all people at all times, in all places, under all circumstances. That is general revelation. It never changes. It is always happening. So that if you learn something from the creation, some sort of scientific, what you perceive to be a scientific truth, and we even mentioned a while back that even uh, scientific paradigms are often shifting. So what you en embrace as a truth in one century is, is rejected as false in another century or changes fundamentally in another century. But what you call this, what you uh, embrace as a scientific truth here, a psychological truth here, this two-book approach assumes that that is under the scope of general revelation. So you're like, oh, I discovered here this is God's revelation. This is true. This is just as true as the Bible, just as authoritative as the Bible. And so because of this kind of confusion of authority, you might say, there is this blending of insights from both the Bible and from what you learn in the world or in the creation as we'll see in a moment, it actually is going to cause this proponent of this view to say some pretty wrong things about an important topic. Um, but he does say, we don't expect psychology to answer the ultimate questions. Instead, we expect psychology will help you understand why people think, feel, and act the way they do. Now, I think that's a pretty significant admission because that realm, uh, helping people understand why they think, feel, and act the way they do, I would argue, that that is the jurisdiction of Scripture. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about psychology, the study of the soul, the study of the way people think, feel, and act the way they do. And, and I believe you can't really truly understand that without a thoroughly biblical worldview. I mean, this is the purview of Scripture. This is the jurisdiction of Scripture. This is God's jurisdiction and what He has revealed in Scripture. So I think that's a significant admission. Um, he says this, he says, psychological research can serve as an apologetic for God's word. And I think this is probably the primary thing that's happening with this particular approach. Um, for example, they, preserve, they present certain uh, elements of research that demonstrate the importance of a two-parent family. Okay, so there's a, there's a fair amount of psychological research that demonstrates that it's good for children to be under a two-parent home. Okay? And you can use that psychological research to demonstrate the truthfulness of God's order, of what God has created. And you can use that to demonstrate the truthfulness of the Bible. God has created man and woman. He has created the family. He has established the family as the, pri as the primary building block of society. Everything revolves around the, the flourishing and the, the promulgation of the human race through the family, right? And you can look at, you can use the psychological research to demonstrate, look at, Scripture's true. What God says is true, right? 
another way that they've, he's, they've used psychological research to uh, argue for the truthfulness of Christianity is to demonstrate there's a connection between faith and mental well-being. So you can see these studies that have been done and people who have faith, who pray, uh, who hope in, in a, a higher power, or hope in God, they're typically more uh, mentally healthy. Now, backing up, the problem with that is that oftentimes this levels of explanation approach and other forms of integration, they speak generally of religion. So really, it's not really serving as a direct apologetic to Christianity. It's just talking about people being more or less religious. And the more, more or less, more religious or spiritual you are, the more you have uh, hope in a higher power or an afterlife or or the more you're able to pray, the more mentally healthy you'll be. But that's not necessarily a specific apologetic for Christianity. That's just an apologetic for religion. And one of the things I've grown a little frustrated with in the various approaches, these various approaches to this question of psychology, uh, psychology and Christianity is they do speak broadly of religion rather than specifically of Christianity which is why we began our study of plumbing the depths of Scripture to show us a, a robust biblical counseling methodology and how Scripture speaks specifically to every element and every aspect of our human experience. So, nevertheless, they, they do, he does argue that psychological research can serve as an apologetic for God's Word. Um, Here's where things start to go awry, though. He says, psychological research can challenge faith-rooted assumptions about human nature. And here's where... So what he's saying is you, there's psychological research out there that tends to undermine what we have traditionally believed about important topics. And the one he brings up is sexual orientation. And he says things like this. He says, the data is unpersuasive regarding whether home environment or parenting affects sexual orientation. Quote, we simply do not know what, if anything, parents can do to influence sexual orientation. And then he says again, quote, the Bible has little, if anything, to say about enduring sexual orientation, a modern concept, or about loving long-term same-sex partnerships. So, I want you to take that and hold it to a side to the side for a moment. I want to say a couple of things before we respond to that. Okay. We've already talked about the two books approach in earlier lessons, right? Uh, so we've already said that this approach typically has a mistaken understanding of general revelation, assuming that anything that can be learned through scientific inquiry into the creation is, quote, general revelation and thus carries the same authoritative weight of Scripture. Hopefully I've uh, been persuasive enough to show us that that can't be the case. That Scripture, special revelation in Scripture, shares a special place of authority, and that merely learning something from the creation does not put that particular truth claim on the same level as Scripture in, in terms of authority. Okay? General revelation is what God is revealing of His person, of His nature, to all people at all times and all places under all circumstances, okay? or in every circumstance. Um, David Pallison, who's the biblical counseling uh, position responding to this writer, he says, he says, quote, while I give ongoing attention to research studies, which is what the levels of explanation approach is all about, it's all about the research, the psychological research studies, I generally find other sources of knowledge far more significant for understanding and helping people. 
So when it comes down to the actual counseling, all these scientific studies are not what I find helpful in the counseling room with hurting people, with struggling people and their problems. It's just, it's just not. All right? Uh, what does he find to be other sources of knowledge to be more significant? Scripture, robust reflections on, meditative reflections on Scripture from those who have dealt with the, the deep issues of the soul. Right? So he's talking about Christian authors and and uh, the scripture itself. So he just, in terms of what we're talking about, when we're talking about counseling, Christians counseling other Christians and, and helping them overcome their problems, whatever their problems may be, relational, sexual, whatever they might be, he's finding this psychological research, though some of it interesting, not what he's bringing into the counseling room as, as effective sources of knowledge. Okay? Um, we've already mentioned how this proponent speaks broadly of Christianity and religion. I just think that's unhelpful. So therefore, I don't think his apologetic, his, the, the psychological research as an apologetic, I just don't, I'm not persuaded at all that it's really that helpful, honestly. Um, I, I, I don't see it um, drawing people to the Christian faith. Um, maybe in a real broad sense it offers an apologetic, but I, but I don't think it's ultimately useful. Okay. Let's respond to his view on sexual orientation. Remember, what he's saying is, is there, we, we need to listen to psychological research because it's, some of it's going to undermine our traditional assumptions about important topics. But his way, what he, but I read you, I just quoted what he said. I used his own words. He says, we simply do not know what, if anything, parents can do to influence sexual orientation. And then, again, quote, the Bible has little, if anything, to say about enduring sexual orientation which is a modern concept or about loving long-term same-sex partnerships. Okay. Anybody, anybody want to point out what's wrong with those two statements before I have a whack at it? You just want me to do it? Okay, that's fine. Parents have no authority over anything, right? It is a very pessimistic view of parenting. Yes. Very pessimistic view towards parenting. Um, and a few other... Uh, logical fallacies that we will point out. First, uh, the phrase sexual orientation is a modern concept. He's correct about that. That phrase is modern. However, this is where we have to be so discerning and why I do want to, when we get into the issue of mental illness, I do want to bring in psychological categories and have us discern them from a biblical perspective. Because this idea of modern psychological concepts really seems to befuddle Christians. But remember from where these things have come out, right? right? We talked about how the Enlightenment had, the, had, a, had a, an important effect on the way people were thinking about people and their problems, the way uh, psycholo psychologists were thinking about people and their problems. They were thinking about people and their problems from a naturalistic point of view. So they were evaluating what we would call sin, but then redefining it in naturalistic categories. That's all this, uh, this category of sexual orientation is. It's, it's looking at, at a particular facet of human existence from a naturalistic uh, point of view, a non-supernaturalistic, non-biblical point of view, and just uh, re-terming it. That's all, that's all that's happening. Restructuring, re-terming, re redefining it from a naturalistic perspective. So, he is right that's a, a modern uh, concept, but we got to be discerning at this point. 
But this does not mean that the social scientists and psychologists who coined and used this phrase have discovered something new about human nature or have accurately interpreted their findings about the nature of human sexuality. Remember, psychology as a modern study is not some sort of objective, empirical approach to the human person that just delivers objective data that we should all be able to embrace and, and use. It's coming from a worldview. It's coming from assumptions about the, the most important things of reality. God, who we are, who made us, what we're like, what's wrong, and so on. Um, what they would call orientation, the scripture calls desire. And homosexual desire and homosexual sexual activity is directly addressed in scripture and clearly called sinful and something that the spirit enables one to repent of when they come to Christ. Some are able to turn from it uh, more easily and more completely than others, but there's nevertheless a profound work of the Spirit when someone comes to Christ in uh, correcting and changing these desires and these activities. I mean, that's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't he? It's a, it, should be a, it's a, it should be a very encouraging word to those who struggle with such things. He says this, he says um, in chapter 6, Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And such a prophetic word, do not be deceived, because there will be clever levels of explanation, Christian psychologists trying to persuade you. Sorry that that sounds snarky, but that's just what, that's the conclusion I've come to. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the blessing, here's the encouraging part. But such were some of and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Remember when we in the very first part of this, I was trying to get us to see the sufficiency of salvation and the power of salvation and what God does in salvation. It's a radical remaking of who we are at the very core of who we are, right? And here's a situation where people are being delivered from lifelong afflictions with this particular sin and this particular desire. So we would say that uh, Scripture calls these things sinful, but also says that it's something that the Spirit enables one to repent of in coming to Christ. Um, the idea that parents, uh, that we don't know what, if anything, parents can do to influence sexual orientation is just false on the face of it. In fact, what's interesting is other people in this book, Five Views of, Christian, uh, Five Views of Christianity and Psychology, particularly Stanton Jones, points out that you are leaving out a whole bulk of research that actually proves your point wrong. And Stanton Jones is an integrationist who I mostly disagree with, right? But he's pointing out here with um, this levels of explanation guy that you're actually, you're not even treating all the data correctly. You're not even treating all the research. You're kind of picking and choosing the research that you're going to appeal to. Um, also, he says here, the Bible, quote, the Bible says little if anything to say about enduring sexual orientation or about loving long-term same-sex partnerships. That is a playing with words, and let me tell you what I mean. Uh, to say that Scripture says nothing about, quote, loving long-term same-sex partnerships is both disingenuous and wrong. 
It is disingenuous because Myers, that's the proponent of this view, is not talking about mere partnerships, but homosexual marriage and homosexual sexual intimacy. So he's not, by phrasing it that way, he's not being honest. And Scripture is clear about both of those issues. However, Scripture does speak about loving long-term same-sex partnerships a lot, and they're called friendships, right? Scripture talks about those things all the time, and it talks about how to cultivate friendships that glorify God. And so what you see here, I think, is, is an approach to psychology that doesn't appropriately place scripture at the right place of authority and thus when it encounters certain studies or scientific apparently scientific studies that seem to undermine some points of of scripture where does he go well he goes with those psychological studies ironically not only does it conflict with scripture but then you see from another uh, integrationist namely stanton jones that this guy's not even addressing all the data right he's not it so uh, so I, I am not one who gives much credence to this levels of explanation approach. I don't think it offers much, much apologetic value. I don't think it offers much value in the counseling office. And I think in this particular case, we have a huge problem with the direction that it leads in terms of important biblical issues. All right. So that's, that's the levels of explanation approach, and that's the, what we would call, the, I would say, the biblical counseling response. Um, I did quote from Pallison, and I offered some of my own responses there. David Pallison is the biblical counselor who's responding to, I can't remember Meyer's first name. Maybe I have it somewhere here. Um, maybe I have it here, actually. Nope, just got his last name in my footnotes. How about that, huh? Okay, next one, the integrationist approach. Now, you might be wondering, that's strange because I thought they're all integrationist approaches. They are, but this is how we have to designate them differently. When I use the word integration, all I mean is, is that this is uh, integration is approach, levels of explanation, integrationist approach, um, Christian psychology and transformational psychology. These are all approaches to, to uh, psychology that say that it is necessary to use the insights of modern psychology in Christian counseling, okay? In the study of the human, in the Christian study of the human person. That if you really want to know the, and understand the human person, you must bring in psychology into Christianity. This is integration, okay? It just so happens that this particular view of integration is, is itself called the integrationist approach. I hope that's not confusing, but I think you'll, you'll see that it is different. It is significantly different than the levels of explanation approach. And though I disagree with Stanton Jones on a number of things, I agree with him on a number of things, and hopefully I'll point that out. All right, this is how he defines it. We've already heard this, but I'll repeat it again. This is how he defines uh, the integration of psychology and Christianity. Quote, the integration of Christianity and psychology is our living out in this particular area of the Lordship of Christ over all existence by our giving His special revelation, God's true word, its appropriate place of authority in determining our fundamental beliefs about and practices towards all of reality and towards our academic subject matter in particular. Uh, I don't have much of a problem with that definition because I believe that's what biblical counseling is. It's the living out of the Lordship of Christ 
over all areas of study. Where we disagree is that phrase, appropriate place of authority. We disagree on what the appropriate place of authority for Scripture is in terms of our living out the Lordship of Christ in all areas of human inquiry. That's where we differ. Okay? And it's going to lead to different places. Uh, he discusses his own personal journey as he was, as a Christian, engaging with these important issues and issues related to people and their problems and change and all these things. And he just became convinced that, uh, or he should say, yeah, he became he was unconvinced that Scripture alone could provide every, every need for understanding of persons, their problems, and the resolution of their problems. And so he then embarked in a uh, study of psychology at a graduate, and I believe postgraduate level, and, and has now been studying at Wheaton, or is teaching at Wheaton for many years. I believe he's no longer there, so he's now retired, but that's where he was for a long time. Uh, he says this, he says about science, which I, which I appreciate, Christians must reject a definition of science that a priori rejects the intervention of God into the natural world. So he says, listen, Christians, you can't just assume that everything that naturalistic scientists are saying about the world is, is true. You can't, because you can't just approach the world from a naturalistic perspective. You have to approach it from a, a, a supernatural perspective. Um, so that's, that's, I think that's helpful. Uh, they must also, we must also reject a definition of Christianity that merely sees its contribution in the realm of meaning, value, significance, ethics, morality, and ultimacy. Christians cannot allow the naturalistic scientists to define science and Christianity in such a way that science deals with facts and Christianity merely views with values like... And then he goes on to give a definition. We don't need to get into that. But he's simply, I think, responding rightly to the way the Enlightenment has totally changed the way... The, most people in the West think about science and faith, remember? If you really want to know truth and facts about the way the world works, you go to science. And if you want to attribute meaning and value to things, then you go to faith. Faith can't give you knowledge per se. That, that com knowledge comes through scientific inquiry. Faith provides hope, it provides meaning, it provides values. But it can't say anything necessarily uh, knowledge-based about your actual existence. It can't provide you knowledge. And that's simply the fruit of the Enlightenment and that dichotomy that was hewn between faith and reason. Okay? So he's just trying to answer that issue, which I, which I appreciate. Um, he mentions that all data is theory-laden. This is helpful, too. Any system of thought or practice that is used as a guide to shame, heal, or reform human life cannot avoid reliance on an extensive set of ethical or metaphysical commitments. And that's something that I've been saying from the get-go, right? Every bit of counseling that you give, every bit of counseling you receive is coming from assumptions about the most important things in reality. Assumptions about God, assumptions about you, assumptions about what your composition is, your nature, assumptions about what's wrong with us, what's wrong with you. And so this is good. Uh, this is helpful. However, remember what he said about the sufficiency of Scripture. He is very clear, and I appreciate his candor, he's very clear that Scripture is not sufficient for the counseling task. It does not provide us all that we would want to know about important issues like schizophrenia, childhood development, and, and so on. Um, I don't need to go into all that I said about that because I, I really went after him on those particular uh, statements because I thought they were uh, full of a number of important logical fallacies. Namely, that 
his idea that the sufficiency of Scripture is dependent upon what he desires to know. I desire to know more than what the Scripture says about issue X. Therefore, Scripture is not sufficient for issue X. But that is, I hope you guys see that that's not legitimate, right? You can't, you can't use your subjective desire for knowledge to say that the Scripture is or isn't sufficient for a particular topic. I mean, uh, we could, then we, would all be, we could all have uh, arguments against the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, he also offers in integration, he, or he, rather he argues that it has apologetic value. Okay? Uh, he says this. He says, <clears throat> there, quote, there are a number of tangible examples of credible integrative work. In contrast to my days of a student, as a student, when religion was neglected by psychologists, today we have an explosion of discussion about the vital role of faith, spirituality, and spiritual development in human life. So what he's saying is, even broadly among secular psychologists, there's now more conversation than there was in the past about how spirituality and religion have to do with a person's psychological uh, life and their psychological makeup and their mental health. Okay? So he's saying this is an apologetic for Christianity. See, Christianity has always been right. And now you're seeing people uh, more and more embrace this. Well, you're not really because people are simply embracing that, okay, religion has a place, right? This is not in a, a recognition of the truthfulness of Christianity, but he does argue that this is kind of an apologetic for Christianity. Rich resources are now available, quoting him again, that present reflections on the role of religion and spirituality in human life. Christian readers must note, here he even admits it, Christian readers must note, though, that the conceptions of religion in such volumes do not reflect orthodox Christian faith. Okay. So again, working from a broadly religious kind of understanding of Christianity, saying people are recognizing that we're not mere naturalistic material beings. Okay, there's something more to us, right? And look at that. That helps bolster an apologetic for Christianity. And so even here, in uh, Pallison will go on to respond to uh, integrationism, being, saying similar things to what he said about uh, the levels of explanation approach, namely that the, the research and the work that integration are doing, I, integrations are doing, I'm, ju I'm just not bringing it into the counseling office. It's just not relevant. I, I'm finding other things to be far more relevant. Uh, also, another, another important thing, he noticed that the integrationists are assuming that if they can accurately describe what's happening to people. And we've, we've noted how often because of common grace, God's common grace, Christians and, and the modern psychologists will have similar agreements on what we're able to observe you know, uh, people doing. Uh, Stanton Jones seems to assume that because you're able to accurately describe something that's happening, this therefore makes it now your role to be able to now prescribe a diagnosis, right? And he thinks that this is, this is uh, not correct either because what happens, what happens when you start moving down the road from observation to then interpretation to application? What starts to happen? You start observing the behavior, and we can have some general agreement about that, about how people are behaving, how they're acting, 
uh, maybe offer a few reasons for why, but generally speaking, we have some agreement. Modern psychologists, Christians have some agreement, okay, why, these, why a person's doing, or uh, what a person is actually doing, how they're behaving. But what happens when you take that behavior and start moving to interpreting that behavior? What does interpreting require? A worldview. That's right. Now it starts to require a worldview. Why they're doing what they're doing. What's the ultimate cause? Okay? And from that interpretation, which is now fraught with worldview assumptions, now you're going to make an application to how to help them. And now we're in, a totally, we're in two different spheres, offering two different kinds of counsel, offering two different kinds of remedies. Okay? So uh, Pallison points that out. He says, quote, describing a person accurately, explaining a person truly, and changing a person into what a person is meant to be are three different things. We might be able to both act, describe a person accurately, right, and agree about that, but then explaining a person truly and changing a person into what a person is meant to be, it's different, right? And we're going to disagree about what those things entail. All right, this is great. Quote, he says, in 30, my 30 years of doing, teaching, and writing about biblical counseling, this is David Pallison now, I have never mentioned or discussed any of the examples Jones cites. Never. I have thought about these matters, but the foreground conversation is filled with, our faith, uh, is filled with how our faith is immediately relevant to all kinds of things that Jones does not mention. So what he's, basically what he's saying, when he says, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty in the counseling office with the person, the, all, the, all the research and all the study that the integration is doing, it's, really, it's just kind of irrelevant. It's not, it's not bringing of anything of real import into the, the counseling office. He's not, he's not seeing any kind of power or change or a, a fundamental change, and so he doesn't think it's necessary. Obviously, that's his, his view. Um, so that's the response, just a few brief responses to the integrationist approach. Any questions so far that I can answer? We're going to buzz through these next two real quick. Like, maybe I'll skip over. No, not that quick. Uh, the next approach, Christian psychology, transformational psychology. Honestly, I, it's hard for me to discern exactly the difference or to discern uh, fundamentally the difference between these two and integrationism. They are all three of them different than levels of explanation in terms of just having a more robust Christian approach. And here's an interesting point. Keith Lambert, who's a biblical counselor, has done extensive work and research in this area, and he says he's noticing those who are of the integrationist school, who have a more robust theological and biblical understanding of these things, they're starting to move more and more and more in a biblical direction. Seeing more and more of the things that biblical counselors have been pointing out for the last 30 years. It's just an interesting thing to ponder. Um, truth will out, I think, in the end. And I think you're starting to see that even in the, this particular area. But nevertheless, Christian psychology, transformational psychology, a lot of the very similar things um, that the integrationists, like a Stanton Jones, are concerned about. Um, so I don't think really, honestly, I'm not sure. But, but there, it, is under, it is undergirded by uh, a kind of a two-book approach to God, God's world and God's word, a two-book approach to 
truth. So that's a, a problem, as we've seen. Um, again, I see in both of these, the real value is in the apologetic value that it brings. Um, and this is where, like Eric Johnson, he's a Christian psychologist, he says, you need Christian psychologists in the secular university to be able to demonstrate the truthfulness of Christianity through a uh, approach to psychology that demonstrates that what you're learning in, in scientific and psychological research bolsters what Christians have been saying for the last 2,000 years about the human condition. Okay, So that's where he believes that Christian psychology has a, an important place, is pri primarily in the university, the secular university, to demonstrate apologetically the Christian faith. Um, similar with transformational psychology. And um, so for that reason, you know, there's just not much more one can say because so much of it is related to the integrationist approach as well. Um, so I probably not useful to, to go, on, go on at any length there, if that's okay with you. I wanted to now go to the biblical counseling view to hear how David Pallison responds to, or David Pallison gives his case now for uh, Christian or biblical counseling, Try to, trying to frame it around um, an understanding of how it affects at a micro and a macro level. Let me explain what I mean. So what he does is he's trying to relate this to the current psychological conversation, and he says there's going to be six levels of psychology. Psych 1, Psych 2, Psych 3, Psych 4, Psych 5, Psych 6. And this, I think you'll understand it once I start getting going here. Okay. Psych 1 is how you work, okay? what he calls how you work. Your experiences, thoughts, feelings, motives, attitudes, memories, volitions, beliefs, assumptions, schemata, perceptions, so on. This is where uh, kind of counselors, psychologists, the psychologists you go down, you know, you, you look up on Google, I need counseling, you find a psychologist, you go to them. This is the level that they're working on, okay? They're dealing with your, uh, what comes out of you, your actions, words, emotions, cognitions, okay? They're dealing with what surrounds and infuses you. They would say there's innumerable situational and biological influence of nature and nurture. They want to look at what rules you, internal motives and in, in various kinds of ways of thinking, okay? You can already start to see that this is not worldview neutral. So this is the level that the that kind of popular psychology is working on. How you work, how you think, how you feel, all right? This is what, is what he would call psych one. And remember, it's okay, I think, to use this kind of language, psych one. You're like, oh, that sounds like he's conceding to a, this a secular approach. No, he's, he's simply using the word how I think it should be used. Psyche just means soul. Psychology just means a study of the soul, which is exactly why we believe, or I believe it should be put under the, the label of Christian discipleship or in the label of, of Christianity or Scripture, uh, underneath the, the umbrella of Scripture. So, but he would respond that psychology is dealing with these categories. Scripture also deals with these categories. Scripture talks about what comes out of you, doesn't it? I mean, Proverbs 4.24 
Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life. Scripture is, is very clear about our anthropology. All that we do, and that's not overstating it, all that we do comes from the heart. In training our kids, um, it's more and more, as Amy and I are learning more and more, it's becoming more and more important in a parent for, uh, that we need to not merely try to correct behavior, but to help our children see that everything that you do flows from a heart, flows from the inside. What you say, how you treat your sister, how you treat your parents, what you want, what your interests are, it all comes from here. And that's, that's an important biblical category. What comes out of you, your manner of life, works, fruit, Hands, feet, tongue. These are the, the categories that Scripture uses. Jesus talked about the heart and from it flowing all the sin that we engage in. Mark 7, 21 and Matthew 15, 19. Scripture talks about what surrounds us and fuses us. Scripture addresses complex life situations, both uh, situational uh, and bodily situations. Suffer the Bible addresses suffering. It addresses blessings, it addresses temptations and trials, it addresses opportunities, it addresses gifts, disabilities. It addresses what you might be hearing that are both true and false. Okay, So Scripture is addressing all the things that what psychology would say, what surrounds and infuses you. And these are the categories that it gives. And then it talks about what rules us, doesn't it? What rules us is our heart, our soul, our mind, our conscience, our desires, our will, our eyes, our ears. So Scripture certainly does have much to say about our desires, about our heart, as we just noted, our conscience. As we noted in several lessons ago, it's the guilty conscience that brings the person into the counseling office so often. Because not only are they... Uh, being sinned against, but in response to that being sinned against, they are sinning, therefore increasing the burden upon their own conscience. And not knowing how to rightly deal with it, that conscience weighs upon them and affects them in every other area of their life, even physically. But not only do those things rule us, and this is what psychology leaves out, you know what else rules us? The living God and His Word. That's what else rules us, or at least should be ruling us. And a person can only be spiritually or mentally healthy to the degree that they are rightly in line with their Creator. How could it be otherwise, right? We are made by Him, fashioned by Him, made for a relationship with Him. He knows what ultimately ails us. He provides for what ultimately ails us, not only on the outside in terms of the law and its requirements, but on the inside with the Spirit changing us, forming us, enabling us, giving us uh, the help that we need. And this is all done through the Word of God, which is a, a perfect standard, a perfect source of truth to enable us to know who we are and who God is and what's wrong with us. And and so because we're ruled by the living God and His Word, this is the, the place where we go, first and foremost, to understand the psyche, right? So this is the level where he would call this, he would call this psych one. 
And Christian biblical counselors are certainly level, working at the level of psych one, so are psychologists. But you can see already in there, there's going to be a, a conflict, disagreements about what is actually true and not true. Okay, and then psych two is detailed knowledge of human functioning. He says, quote, psych two refers to the organized knowledge, close observation, and systematic descriptions of human functioning. Psych 2 is a thing about psychology. This is really important observation. Psych 2 is a thing about psychology books and psychologists in person that make them so interesting. They know a great deal about people. And at some level, they do. I mean, just if you're someone who, just, who has given their life to just observing people and what they do and pondering why they do what they do, then you're going you're gonna to have some interesting things to say <clears throat> about people. Things that resonate. Because people know intuitively we're more than just biological machines. There is something wrong. I want to overcome my problems. And so psychologists over the last two centuries have been putting together a systematic body of knowledge that resonates with people. It's about people. It's about their problems. Um... They have an ability to supply descriptive riches in a, in a feel for how people work, whether case experience or research findings, and this is attractive. Psych 2 is why a piece of psychological literature can ring bells of human experience. Okay? There is a reason why people, are, by and large, Christians included, are so attracted to psychology. It seems to explain us. It seems to explain our problems. It seems to help us overcome our problems. It seems to offer an explanation for why the, way, why the things are the way they are and why you do the things you do and how to stop doing the things that you do and how to stop, to ruin, stop ruining your relationships and how to stop eating so much and how to stop feeling so guilty, right, all the time. And people, like people are hungry and thirsty for that, which is exactly why we want to step in and say, we got what you really need, okay? But nevertheless, we got to admit that it's pretty, people are like, you can understand why it's so attractive. And you can understand why when it's coupled with this apparent scientific objective study of the human person coming out of the Enlightenment, why then it seems to have an authoritative weight. Right? We saw that a couple weeks ago. Post-Civil War, basically the drift in the West was towards psychology as a, an authoritative body of knowledge to teach us and instruct us on how to live and, and how to cope and, and so on because it was based in science, based in true knowledge, wasn't grounded in faith. And well, as we saw, that's a bit of a, uh, a wrong classification altogether. But nevertheless, you can understand, boy, if you've got this study and these observations that resonate with people and it's coupled with scientific authority, psh, man, grab it while you can. It's the most value, valuable piece of knowledge on planet Earth. Um, well, this is why, um, this is precisely why the biblical counseling movement has, has been, people in the biblical counseling movement have been laboring to demonstrate that there is a, a better alternative and to, and to start to develop more robust, systematic, comprehensive teaching on these issues and to engage with psychology on these issues to demonstrate that 
uh, Christianity and Scripture really do have the sufficient resources to do all and provide all that people are, are looking for. Um, he says this, he says, a, a persistent misunderstanding of a biblical counseling view asserts, quote, you don't believe Christians can learn anything from secular psychology. And he says, on the contrary, we can learn and should learn and do learn from anyone and everyone. But we do not seek to be aware, or we do seek to be aware of the blinkering and distorting effects of faulty assumptions and explanations. He, uh, he includes, this is interesting, he includes John Calvin's interaction with the Greek philosophers. John Calvin, he's a 16th century reformer, strongly exegetical, excellent theologian, and uh, he would gauge with the Greek philosophers of his time, the Greek psychologists, you could say, of his time. And uh, it says, quote, on a superficial reading, he almost seems contradictory. He applauds the Greeks for brilliant insights and in the next breath, demisses them as blind and wrongheaded. But this is exactly the way that a God-centered gaze interprets other gazes, simultaneously appreciative and contrary. To use in mid-20th century metaphor, secular psychologists have neurotic insights simultaneously brilliant and distorted. With a careful caveat about theory-ladenness of data and with a well-trained ability to think from your own point of view, you can learn from anyone and interact with everything. The bottom line regarding Christianity and Psych 2, we can learn a great deal, but bear in mind of how faulty assumptions variously overemphasize, exclude, distort, or falsify information. So remember what we're talking about. We're not talking about just a total disengagement with what the world is saying. What we're saying is as a methodology, those insight, insights are not necessary for the counseling task. We have all that we need in Scripture, in the church, and in the insights that, that people have been able to draw, uh, that Christians have been able to draw from the Scriptures applied to the counseling situation. And then he just goes on to talk about um, Psych uh, 3, which is talking about competing theories of human personality. You're going to have conflict there between biblical counseling and, and modern psychology. Uh, you're going to have conflict between the practical application. We've already talked about that. Uh, and then that's going to lead to uh, a system of professional and institutional arrangements that are going to be very distinct and different in terms of their approach. And then finally, what he calls a, a, mass, e a mass ethos. How are people thinking about these issues, right? And you're going to have two different approaches based on how you take the authority of Scripture and the reality of the Christian faith and whether or not, uh, whether you do or you don't. Um, we're coming to the end here. Uh, we can save this for next week. There's nothing significant even in this section that I would say that you haven't heard before. Uh, I left a spot there where the, um, these four views respond to biblical counseling uh, as you can imagine, they mention, like, you're, you're opposed to learning from God's creation. That's a, that's a caricature that's not true. Um, here's another big one, and we'll cover this in the next couple of weeks. Biblical counseling can't solve the really serious problems. Okay, you're in church, you've got some guy dealing with adultery, you can handle that. But when it comes to the really serious stuff, like identity disorder, bulimia, um, schizophrenia, that's out of your, that's way above your pay grade, Jack. And so just forget about that. And so that's another, that's another uh, response to the biblical counseling uh, approach. 
Biblical counseling is utterly different from psychological science, and to a degree I would agree <laughs> uh, in terms of if you're defining psychological science from a naturalistic point of view. Um, Christianity should enable us to learn from secular scholarship, and I'd say, yeah, I do, and we do. Again, we're talking about methodology, right? We're not talking about whether or not I can learn something from secular scholarship. Um, so those are a few of the important responses, and again, we'll be responding to those things as we go along. Any questions before we leave this morning? I know that was pretty heady stuff, but we had to do it, and uh, next week I think the, the mental illness stuff is going to be super helpful and uh, interesting. So any questions before we go? Sarah, Shamness. Sorry, you are stepping into a whirlwind. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, all right. Um, would you say there's any value in studying secular psychology? And like, what would you say to a Christian psychologist? I'm not a psychologist. Sure. I'm just curious. <laughs> um, I think it always depends on the why. So, why, so to, the, to the why are you studying psychology? Do you believe that it offers superior insight into the nature of human beings and their problems? Uh, or do, are you doing it or in order to better understand that view in order to demonstrate the superiority of, of Christianity against or biblical counseling against that view? Are you studying it in order to accurately represent it as you uh, demonstrate the truthfulness of a biblical counseling perspective? Um, are you studying it in order to become more and more skilled at serving others in the area of counseling? Um, so I think it really it comes down to the why. Um, I think it's challenging, at least in my experience and what I've heard, that the further that people go in psychological study, bachelors, then masters, then PhD, the more and more they become persuaded that scripture isn't sufficient. It's just that's been my experience, that the further you go. Um, the more persuaded they become that these modern categories are in fact distinct from what we know about human beings from Scripture. Um, so what would I say to a, a psych major in uh, getting their bachelor's? I would just, I'd want them to be thoroughly integrated in the local church. I want them to be studying biblical counseling and understanding not just a superficial understanding, but like what we've been doing, like really getting under the issue of assumptions and worldview and interpretation and observations and all these things, and um, so that that can help them navigate their their trek through uh, their psychological psychology degree, and um, and also I think you probably also want to warn them too that there are there are dangers inherent in in that degree, but it, dangers inherent in any kind of degree that's that's largely dependent on worldview. So I think it's a little different than like an engineering or Christian sci uh, uh, computer science degree. You, you're, it's a heavily worldview-laden degree. So if, you're, if, you are, if you have a heart to counsel people, if you have a desire to help people, then, then you really want to pursue these biblical counseling resources it's, it's just as, more, more strongly than you are the, even that, that psychology degree. Um, so that when it, when it comes to the end, 
your psychology degree with that will actually have, have benefited you because you, will have, you know what the world is saying and now you know how to respond with something superior and better and, and more helpful. So that's what I would say to your, your friend. So, good question. Yes, Crystal. Yeah. So the big, the big uh, difference between like an integrationist model and a biblical counseling model, the biblical counseling model says that psychological insights are not necessary uh, for the Christian counseling enterprise. It's not necessary for Christian growth. Uh, it's not necessary, necessary for Christian maturity. Um, in a, a book like that, uh, and oh, and another important piece too that's important to recognize, that those in insights are not the exclusive property of secular psychology. Those are the things that can be gleaned from a, a robust and wise understanding of the scripture lived out in community with others. And so um, then the question becomes, okay, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend eight to ten hours, six to eight to ten hours engaging in this, in this book. Um, I might glean some things that are helpful. Um, are they exclusive property of the psych psychological, modern psychology? I don't think so. And in as much as they, they reflect or are in concert with a biblical understanding, the question is, is, are there other resources that would not only give me those insights, but also now give me the, the foundational reasons for, for, those re for those things, those practical insights and so on. So I'm not saying that a person can't learn from the, those things. I'm simply saying that I question their necessity, and then I question whether or not there are things that are better uh, in those areas, like, like relationships. So um, I think with discernment, we can say, yeah, you know, those, those principles, are, they're all fine, but we also have to remember that it's not just merely the practical principles. They're saying things about our human nature and about relationships that are going to be flowing from and intertwined with their view of reality. And their view of reality, because they're not a Christian, is going to be markedly different from ours. And so it's going to result in um, things that are just, well, flat out wrong and, and unhelpful. So, uh, I, yeah, that's kind of a long answer to a short question. But it is, it is an important one because this is precisely where I think Christians let their guard down. And, and fail to be, we fail to be discerning. So, but that's, it's a great question, yeah. All right, it is 10.10. I'm sorry that it's 10.10. Please forgive me. Uh, I will let you go and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And um, we'll see you back here next week.